If you weren't with us last week, we kind of jumped into the deep end of the pool, but boy, some of the feedback that I got, especially standing around Sunday afternoon, was apparently we hit a nerve with this whole self-talk thing. So here's what I want to do this weekend is actually, I thought what we were going to do this weekend was talk about how do we kind of play a new script and write a new script, but it occurred to me this last week that we're probably one step ahead of ourselves by saying that's what we're going to do. We're going to do that next week. Because I think this morning what maybe becomes important is ask this question, why does it matter? Or, or go ahead to that next slide. Like, what, what, what does deadly self-talk cost us? Because what we did last week was try to demonstrate all the different ways that we have this death by self-talk experience. And maybe that's something you have identified before. Maybe you've never even thought of that before. But just the reality that there's this way of speaking to ourselves that uh, is, is brutal. Uh, but the question that I want to ask this morning is, so who cares? I mean, is this about more than self-esteem? Is this about more than just the inconvenience of some negative thoughts? Like, what, what, what does it actually earn you, so to speak, uh, when you do this? Because or, or, I think what we're doing in this series is, at least I feel like this is what I'm working through personally, is just assessing uh, what, what's, what's the value of this? Or rather, I'm saying that ironically, like, what's the cost of this? So there's two things we did last week, just to kind of bring us up to review. The first thing was we handed out some lifesavers, and there was this somewhat silly but hopefully helpful mechanism, and if you weren't here or you ate up all your lifesavers before Sunday was over, we do still have some left there up here. Um, what we did last week is this goofy thing where we said, hey, what if you take, take a roll of lifesavers with you? And it's so awkward. Like, I don't think of myself as wearing skinny jeans, but apparently, like, even that has changed since when I was high school, because you can't even put a roll of lifesavers in your pocket without it just being awkward. So <laughs> what we said, though, was like, what if you were to carry around a roll of lifesavers so that when you had that awkward realization of what's this in my pocket, or when someone said, hey, what's in your pocket, uh, depending on how all that goes, that, that there would be this sense of like, oh, yeah. God, would you please make me aware of my self-talk? Because that was really where we landed last week, was just this, God, would you expose any tendency I might have in this direction? Uh, and, and part of what we did last week was to say, if you're thinking, like, I don't, even, I don't even know if I believe in God. I'm definitely not praying to Jesus recently. The great thing about the God of the Bible, and this isn't a one-weekend thing, this is a, like the way we try to explore this every week thing, is that God, God is very much a try-before-you-by-God. And I know that might not be the way you've experienced him, and it might not be the way you were raised, or it might not be the experience of whoever it was that represented him most recently to you. But what you see over and over and over again in the scriptures is a Jesus who says, come follow me. And then along the way, if you decide that you like what you're getting, then you can stick with me. But by all means, at any point, you have the freedom to drop off. And so I think this permission to just go like, God, make me aware of my self-talk is this, you kind of get to put God on the spot and see if in fact he does. And then what we said is when you actually do become aware of your self-talk, when you catch yourself going, oh, I think I just did that. Anybody have any of those? You're such an introverted crew. Um, <laughs> then you get to eat a lifesaver. So it's this very juvenile thing. What we're building towards is the next week where we begin to have this conversation of, so how do we functionally write new scripts? So that was the lifesaver thing. The other thing we did, I need a volunteer. Would anybody be willing to come up here again this morning after what you saw last week? Any, <laughs> anybody willing to jump up here? Come on. Christian's going to do it. You're such a kind-hearted. But here's the good news, Christian. This week, you get a microphone. So... <laughs> So this is going to, um, if, if narrate implodes after this weekend, it's Christian's fault. I'm just kidding. So do you have your war one of these? They're terribly uncomfortable. So put that over both ears. What have I done? <laughs> and then put this 
I don't know, in your pocket or something. So I'm going to unmute him. Will you run the mute? Be quick on the draw, would you? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> and then I'm going to awkwardly touch your, your lobe. There you go. So let's, let's test him. So, okay. Oh, there it is. I'm here. Sweet. Okay, so last week, if you weren't here with us last week, uh, we, we did this thing, and I love this metaphor, and frankly, I think if the only thing you take from this series is this metaphor, is there's a guy named Dr. Kurt Thompson, who's a board-certified psychiatrist, who says that one of the ways we can think about this self-shaming tendency is to think of it in terms of a shame attendant. So, towel over the arm, tuxedo kind of attendant, or plaid shirt with shorts and flip-flops. <laughs> But the idea here is that this person, and, and I know this can get psychotic. I caught myself when I was thinking about it. It's almost like reading the screw tape letters of like, I don't like where this is taking me. But the idea here is that if we can think about shame in such a way that long before you even had formed language, there was this thing in your life that followed you around. I know this is where it can get psychotic. But, but ultimately is there to attend to all of life's experiences. Except for it doesn't have good in mind. It has self-hate in mind. So, here's your moment. So, there's this following around. So, you're at the free throw line, and your shame attendant says... You can't do this. All right. Or you walk into fifth period, and you see this group of kids that you know don't like you, and your shame attendant says... Are those lifesavers in their pocket? (laughs) (laughs) I knew this was going to work out really well. Yes. So, <laughs> oh man, I kind of want to double over and just move on. <laughs> so this is this whole idea, and this is kind of this image we're trying to think. The question they want to ask this morning, so your job is now you get to shadow in very tight corridors. Okay. Um, and you can't see anything. You're about to learn that too. The question I want to ask this morning then is, okay, so what's the cost of all this? Other than the inconvenience or a smart aleck shame attendant or whatever that is, what, what does this actually cost us? And the warning I have to make is I don't, I, I don't think it's very complicated, but I do think there's a lot of depth to it. <clears throat> and where I want to go, <clears throat> excuse me, one thing you could do is read Kurt Thompson's book because he's a brain scientist kind of guy, and he has a lot of scientific explanation as to how the, the way the Bible explains this parallels with the way uh, psychiatrists are now understanding this. But I want to go to Genesis. And in chapter 2, uh, there's a statement said, and we actually hinted at this last week, and I want to build on a little bit this week. The end of chapter 2, remember this is, this is a text that was probably written down for the first time about 2,500 years ago. Probably had five, six, seven hundred years of oral tradition. So, so we're going back several thousand years. And there's a people, and one of the things that I think is essential to remember about Genesis 2 and this whole story is that the story starts with some people who are experiencing some form of perfection. We call them Adam and Eve, and there's this, all these things, the fig leaves and snakes and apples, some of which are there, some of which aren't. But the thing that's, to me, essential is that we remember the story we're reading, it's not written by Adam and Eve, it's not written by anybody with fig leaves. It's not written by people who, have, who are experiencing life in its perfection. It's written instead from people who are over here, where you live, where I live. People who know what it's like to be raised by alcoholic parents. People who know what it's like to experience divorce. People who have buried people that they love. People who are dealing with dire health diagnoses. People who are dealing with pain and brokenness. And what they're doing is trying to make sense of how did it go wrong? What's what's the catalyst? What's the keystone problem, if you will? And listen to this. Adam and his wife were both naked, 
and they felt no shame. Now, this is Dr. Thompson's observation, but I think it's worth plagiarizing. Here's a question. If you were able to remove anything negative, if, if you were to somehow go like, if this went away, my life would be perfect, or if you had this, my life would be perfect, what word would you use to describe it? What vice might you remove? Point being this, these ancient peoples, whoever she or he was, whoever the author was, they, they had a plethora of words available to them to describe perfection. They could have said, Adam and Eve were naked, and they were completely happy. They could have said they were completely strong. They could have said they were completely confident. They could have said they had no experience of fear. They had no experience of guilt. There was no regret in their life. There was no anxiety. There was no depression. There was no addiction. What does it tell us that for over 3,000 years, people, as they've looked at, like, what's the keystone problem? There's been this almost intuitive, or maybe not intuitive, this deep-seated hard work realization observation that the fundamental issue is shame. I don't know about you, but I would have never in a million years went, let me get rid of anything, and it would be my shame. Like, give me one thing, and I would love to feel no Shame, it's part of what we're trying to do in this series is just bring an awareness to the pervasive influence of it. So why? Well, the rest of the story, I'm going to argue, and this is what's awesome about Genesis is the different angles, is it's going to attempt to tell us what's the cost of deadly self-talk? What's the cost of shame? Watch this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Question. See, now I can't even put these in my pocket. I'm just going to carry them the rest of the morning. (laughs) Question. Is the serpent really interested in more information? Again, Dr. Thompson's question, I'd never thought of it before, but is the serpent really after more information? Is, is, is Is it after facts? Story continues. The woman said to the serpent, you may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from fruit eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. To which the serpent said, you, will not, you won't die. You won't die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. I wonder, is the implication there, you're nothing like God? Is the implication there, God doesn't want you to be anything like him? Is the implication there, You're not good enough. God would never want you to be like him. And I think the driving question here is, is the serpent after more information? Is the serpent trying to be a positive catalyst to the woman's relationship with God? And and if he was, what would you expect him to be saying to her? Because notice what you don't see is the serpent going, you you know what, The, the attendant, if you will. You, You don't see the attendant going, you know what, you should go back and ask God this question. You should go ask him that. We shouldn't sit here and speculate about this over a beer. You should should go talk to your boss. You should go call her. We probably shouldn't together talk about your marriage. You should probably go talk to your husband. Notice that what the serpent's doing isn't pushing her back to God. And he's not really looking for information. So what's he doing? Look at verse 8. Then the man and his wife... 
They heard the sound of the Lord God. It was these walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? I know this is overly simplistic, but question, what was the net result of the exchange the serpent and this attendant had with the woman? Question, when you're standing at the free throw line and your self-talk says, you suck, you could never do this, you're not going to make it, does that cause you to step closer to the game of basketball or further away? Question, when you're walking into the classroom and you feel self-conscious about the lifesavers in your pocket, does that cause you to go sit next to them or to go back uh, to the counselor and ask if you could switch which period you have history? Keep going. Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? To which the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? So here's my question, and I know this isn't rocket science, but I do think it's worth spending some time with, and this might create some work for you in the way you process life. But what what if the end game of your negative self-talk is nothing more than isolation and separation? Like, what if the end game of this whole game that this attendant wants to play with you is to cause you to, to move further and further and further into the corner? Because think about it, and, and, and this, this, again, I like, think this is what you get to analyze. When you, when you start talking to yourself like that, does it cause you to pick up the phone and go, hey, we should hang out? Or does it cause you to go, like, I don't think they like me, they probably don't want to hang out with me? And what if the real danger here isn't just about self-esteem or even just your own mental state as you work a day at the office? What if the end game here is the destruction of relationship, the disunity, the separation, the isolation? And here's here's another way to gauge this, and this one's scary. Uh, Dr. Thompson would say uh, that when you feel threatened, the first question you should be asking is, where's the shame? And his point is this, that when, when, you, when you feel shame, you either withdraw, you remove yourself. So you wake up in the morning, here you go, Christian, here's another chance. You wake up in the morning, you think, I'm going to go to church today. And your shadow or your attendant says, they don't want to see you there. Or it's evening and you think, you know, I'm going to call somebody and we're going to hang out. And your attendant says to you, they'd rather hang out with someone else. I'm just a burden. So so there's this withdrawal thing. The other thing that he says is when you feel attacked, it's not always the case, but the first logical question you ought to be asking when your brain cools down enough is to go, where's the shame? Because what he says is you either have the option of withdrawal or you have the option of attack to destroy them because someone's going to die here, so it's going to be them, not me. Which ultimately, and many of us have family structures and friend structures and all kinds of other histories that says ultimately it results in what? Separation. You you still accomplish the same thing. You know, we we like to talk about sin and original sin in the Bible and Jesus coming to save. Here's potentially an unorthodox, if, if not very dangerous question. What if the sin that God is trying to undo at its very fundamental core, according to this story, is that of shame? 
And if that holds any merit to it, then wouldn't you expect to see a Jesus who spends his few years of quote-unquote ministry undoing shame? Now, one of the real catalysts for me in this series was an article I had to read for the spiritual direction class that I was taking last year. Uh, it was written by a, an Australian clergy member named Bowler. And it was a journal article, and it was all about guilt and shame, shame and guilt. And really, he was going with, you can go ahead to that next slide, he was going with the classic distinction, and many of you are probably aware of this, that the, the classic distinction between shame and guilt is guilt is I did wrong, and shame is I am wrong. But at the end of this journal article, and if you're interested in it, email me this week because I have it in an attachment, or I could send it to you in an attachment. At the end of the article, he makes this statement. Go ahead to that slide, will you? He says, the Gospels portray a Jesus much more committed to the healing of shame rather than guilt. Now, that's a huge statement. I mean, you could probably do a dissertation on the veracity and the validity of that statement. But if true, wouldn't you expect to be able to open to the Gospels and as an everyday reader of Scripture, work your way through the events of Jesus and go, wait a minute, shame or guilt, shame or guilt, shame or guilt, shame or guilt. You ought to try it. I did it in Mark, and here's my own kind of arbitrary, I spent probably a month on this. Here's my own little arbitrary reading of the Gospel of Mark. Go ahead to, to the next, next, go ahead, next slide. Thanks, Anna. So Jesus calls Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who are very ordinary, blue-collar, uh, unsophisticated followers. And I'm just, what I'm doing here is I'm just kind of powering through, and I've skipped a few, but this is, if you were just kind of peruse like the, the headings of the Gospel of Mark, th this is kind of what you get. Next, Jesus heals a man with an impure spirit. Remember, in this culture, if you have some impurities, uh, that, that's indicative of a God who's cursing you and you've got something to deal with. Next slide. Jesus heals many sick and demon-possessed people. Remember, this is a culture who assumes that health is a sign of blessing, illness is a sign of cursing. Next slide. Jesus heals a, a man with leprosy. Not leprosy as we know it today, but any kind of skin condition, which the net result was what? You had to hang out outside of town. Next slide. Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. That one's really interesting because you really have shame and guilt in the same story. Next slide. Jesus calls a guy named Levi, who's a tax collector. Notice what I'm trying to point out here is over and over and over again, Jesus' conversation isn't like, you know, you really screwed up when you offered that sacrifice. You, you know, you, you really got this thing that you need to deal with. Notice over and over and over what Jesus' conversations seem to involve is drawing people who have assumed they're on the outside of God back to God. And he doesn't start with their guilt. He starts with their presumed problem, which has resulted in their isolation. Next slide. Jesus goes to a party with Levi's friends. Next slide. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. You can't do that. Next slide. Jesus appoints 12 apostles. And again, they're a ragtag bunch. Only one, ironically, Judas is even from the prestigious area of Jerusalem. Next slide. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. Next slide. Jesus heals a man who was deaf and mute. Next slide. Jesus heals a blind man. Next, he, he heals a boy possessed by an impure spirit. Go ahead to that next one. Jesus gives, and then there's this whole conversation about divorce, which we've covered before, which is this remarkable conversation where what we can miss is that he's giving incredible dignity to divorced women. Then he welcomes children in. He praises children. Then he's at the temple, and this is, again, my own arbitrary reading of this, but he pushes against this, this, this notion. Oh, wait. First of all, he pushes against the notion that rich people are more blessed by God. 
There's this whole thing about like, don't, don't think that you're, that you're blessed and right with God just because you have wealth. Then he criticizes the temple. I'm going to argue the shaming system of the temple. Then he, he praises uh, a poor widow's offering at the temple. She offers nothing, but hers is the offering he points out. Last slide. And then right before his death in Mark, when Mark kind of leaves it unresolved, it would seem we're probably missing the end. Jesus is anointed by a former prostitute before his death. All of that asking this question, what, what if... Genesis is on to something. And what if the root thing that wrecks us is shame? And what if the root problem is isolation and separation? And what would happen if we began to understand that this God doesn't do shame the way this attendant does? I was talking to a friend who, who, who does a bunch of work in this area uh, with, with people and he said to me last week, he said, Adam, one of the biggest challenges I have is to help people go, wait, wait, wait a minute. That voice isn't God's. That's your mom or that's your dad. But part of the work is differentiating what is actually the attendant from what is actually God. Can you imagine what would happen if there was a people who understood that this God is primarily whispering to you that you're his beloved? that you're made for him. Could you imagine a, 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 an approach to God that started with shame, not, not playing fast and loose with guilt, but started with shame and then moved towards owning the stuff that's yours to own? So here's my question. What happens if you do the hard work to pray the prayer to ask God to make you aware of your shame attendant? And what happens if, if you spend some time in the Gospels, read about Jesus' interactions with people, reprogram your preconceived notions about the way God speaks to us, and understand at its core, this God doesn't do shame. Guilt? Yeah, sure. He's more than willing to call you to account for the stuff that's yours. But that his primary message to you is, is that you belong, not that you don't. We're going to give you a chance to take communion this morning, and I think that's a perfect thing, segue into all of this. So if you've not done communion with us, we have elements here, here, and up in the balcony. We have wine and juice and bread and gluten and no gluten, and just we, we dip, we don't sip, and we like to keep our cuticles out of the wine as well. But ultimately, this is the ultimate expression of a God who goes, would you please let me deal with your shame? Would you please let me bear the weight of your own self-hate and would you allow me to reprogram? Because on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, broke it. He took wine, poured it out and said, hey, this is my body, this is my blood. This is how far I'll go to free you from your shame attendant. I'd like to pray, God. Thank you. Um, thanks for ancient stories like that in Genesis. Thanks for guys like Jesus and, and the way that you used people to capture the essence of his person and his work. We love you. Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.